0: We just go right to the heart of it. Balance is not a destination.
1: That's Jay Papason, executive, speaker, and the best-selling author of The One Thing, The Surprisingly Simple Truth Behind Extraordinary Results.
0: When I'm public speaking, right, and I'm in a room with a bunch of people, I'll often ask people, if you're physically able, would you stand up on one foot? And I'll say, great, are you balanced or are you balancing? And everybody's like, I'm balancing. And I'm like, thank you. It's a verb. It's not a noun.
1: I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of CRISP, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. CRISP started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're revisiting one of our most popular episodes from the podcast where I sat down with Jay Papison to discuss his bestseller, The One Thing, why the popular concept of balance is a fallacy and how to accomplish more by doing less.
0: But if you constantly cheat on time, there is a massive price that you will pay.
1: That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Jay Pappison serves as vice president at Keller Williams Realty, the world's largest real estate company. He's also the co-owner and co-founder of several successful businesses. His most popular book, The One Thing, has sold more than one and a half million copies, has been translated into 35 languages, and has appeared on more than 500 national bestseller lists.
0: I'm a functionally kind of a book nerd. I'm a French English major that learned business late in life. So if you look at my chapters up until about age 30, I thought that you built your wealth by getting a job, maybe becoming an executive, right? And taking that path. And then um, early in 2000, I started working with Gary Keller, the founder of Keller Williams Realty and total paradigm shift, right? He's an entrepreneur, self-made billionaire. And to my great joy, a couple of years into the journey, I found out he wanted to write books. And that was my publishing background, HarperCollins Publishers. And we launched first a book and then a publishing company. So it's been a fun journey for me to kind of go from being kind of a craftsman and an artist to learning the skills of business, which would be anybody listening. It's not too late. That's what I'm to say it's not too late. Um, if I can figure it out, you can, too. Today, fast forward, I co-own a publishing company with him. I co-own a training company around the one thing. um, And I'm also an executive in Keller Williams. And my wife runs a big real estate team. The one thing came out of my job here at Keller Williams. Um, We were working on a course. This was around 2000 seven, 2008. The book came out in 2013. So go back four and a half years, not doing the math in my head. But I just helped complete a course for essentially a real estate business person, how much would they have to grow their business revenue to earn the right to hire their first employee. And that's a big landmark, as you know, right? Okay, I'm, I'm working for myself, I might have a part time assistant, but like, I'm gonna have a W2. And that feels like a big journey into being a business person. And we had wrapped up the course and Gary Um, said, you know what, I want to go home and write you an essay. I want to just kind of I want to give you something fun to start it off with. And he came back with about a 14 page handwritten essay called The Power of One. And you would recognize having read the book, a lot of the concepts. And it was really kind of his journey of identifying the things that mattered most. And in that aspect, the number one thing is if you had your marketing engine running, if you had customers, kind of everything else started to fix itself. And I looked at him and it's like Monday morning, I was reading his essay in his office. And I said, Gary, this could be a book. And he goes, I thought the same thing. And that launched us on a journey um, where we spent probably six, seven hard months outlining the concepts. And then we hired two full-time researchers who went out to validate the ideas or invalidate them. So about a third of our hypothesis got chucked out the window. And that's, I just will note that about my partner. He's always willing to be wrong, but he's always going to work from the aspect of at that moment in time, he believes is the absolute truth about the best way to do something. So there's the origin story. It started with a course on being a business person, a uh, little essay that we
1: turned into a book, but it took us about four and a half years. Now, I love the book in the sense that, you know, it's really built around the one, you know, the focusing question, which, which you know, which we'll, which we'll get to later, but you obviously written a whole book about a concept. That's really one thing and and it lends itself to the, to really wondering why is this such a challenge, right? And why is this such a barrier for so many of just being able to focus in on the right things in order to be able to maximize results? I mean, it's clear that we have many distractions, but I know that uh, throughout the book, you're mentioning that focusing on the things that are going to be, you know, it's almost like the domino effect of what's going to set in motion, everything else, success being sequential and so on. But I just, I'd love to know what are some of the barriers that really prevent people from, uh, from going this route and focusing down?
0: Well, there's a big difference between simple and easy. So it's in the subtitle. It's a surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. And as practical people, I mean, I would say pragmatic, you know, Gary and I read not just to learn, but to do this is something that he just beat into my head, complicated and quote, sophisticated, aren't the same thing. And a lot of people get sold these very complex multi-part plans and they're very hard to live. You can do it for a week or two and then it falls apart because you're trying to change too much. So simple is always the better path. And I believe simple is the ultimate sophistication. And I, I really do believe that if we can keep it simple, focus on the handful of things, much more will happen and people can implement that day to day. But I'll go back to the part about it not being easy. The world does not line up to invite us to focus. Um, it doesn't invite us to prioritize. It doesn't invite us to kind of narrow down to one thing for any long period of time. One of the things I was most afraid of, you mentioned the focusing question, and we'll get to it. But this idea of what's my one thing is the short version of it. I was really afraid people wouldn't know the answer, Michael. And I can tell you now, um, we've probably taught over 10,000 people in corporations, individual groups, you name it. And people know the answer. They are just so busy running around, the hair on fire, right? And entrepreneurs, they have a lot going on. They're not stopping to ask. And that was such a great relief for me. And actually people, when they ask the question, a lot of them immediately feel this sense of guilt for not having done it. So the number one thing we wanted people to do when they read this book was just to start asking that question. What is my real priority here? What is my real priority today, this week, this month, this year? Whatever your frame of reference is. And if you can identify that, start there. It doesn't mean it's the only thing, but you're going to give it first position in terms of your time and focus. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. And it it seems like this expands to not just what, you know, you as a leader are are focusing on, but also what what the business focuses on. And it can also be a person, as you mentioned.
0: Oh, yes. Everything doesn't matter equally and all people don't matter equally. And while we want to be equal opportunity employers, there's all of that stuff that goes on. The reality is a handful of people often contribute at a much higher level and they deserve more of your attention and they often deserve more of the reward. And I mean, the whole idea, Do you know, Pareto's principle, right? The eighty-twenty 20 That originally came out of discussion. I want to say it was in GE. And it was Joseph Duran that was actually a quality control engineer. And one of his colleagues mentioned to him a study of executive compensation that happened to follow Pareto's law. And that was at 80-20. And that was like Compensation was it? Like this idea that eighty percent of the compensation would
1: often go to the twenty percent of the people that contributed the most. Now, I know in the book you actually take that principle further. In, in fact, you, you even take it and say identify the twenty percent and then go even smaller, so the twenty percent of the twenty percent.
0: That's right. We call it extreme Pareto, um, and it's just a it's a process that I actually found to be um, amazing psychic reliever. We a lot of us work from to do list. A lot of us have a list of things that we know are our priorities. That's great. It's great to understand your priorities and have a plan, but if you can take it one step further and say of all the things that I could do, what is the one thing that I should? And it's really, you're just saying, what's the 20% of this until you get to one, right? And I've watched people, we do this little exercise and we walk them through it just to usually two or three turns and they'll take a list of 25 things that they've remembered they have to do and identified usually no more than five things that actually matter. And what's even better that handful of things that matter, there's a clear number one. And when I look up in the days that I know that I knock out my number one first, I feel kind of righteous, right? Gary's fond of saying really successful people just have a great day before noon. So you get up and you knock out that true number one. And then the rest of the day, you don't have to be quite so disciplined, right? Because that number one thing happened, it creates a lot of energy right? It kind of dictates a lot of your other priorities, because in doing that thing, a lot of these other dominoes start falling and you have to chase them. So I could go on and on, but that is kind of the idea. And when I coach people, like someone in my office will say, coach me, how can I be more productive? That's the first place I take them. I want you to start with your to-do list, get an egg timer. I don't care. You don't have more than five minutes. I just want you to go. If I only got one thing done today that mattered the most, what would it be? That becomes your new number one and follow that same process. If I get that done, what's my number two? If I get those done, what's my number three? And you don't really have to go farther than about four or five because you're not going to do them all. And what happens magically, people do the one or two and a lot of the other stuff just suddenly doesn't matter at all. That's where the relief comes. I was like, oh, I thought I had all this stuff to do. Only a few things matter.
1: So I'd love to go deeper on that, because I, and as you mentioned throughout the book, that activity is often unrelated to productivity. We all know very busy people. And you, know, you talked about kind of the difference between like a to do list and a success list. But what you just mentioned in terms of you know realizing that most things don't matter. I'm sure there's there's going to be somebody listening and saying, you know what, guys, that sounds great. But if I only focus on these key things, well, how does the rest of that stuff even get handled?
0: Great question. Now we're getting into a business conversation in my mind. And that was the point of that essay. If you're doing the one thing that really drives your business forward, that's going to create increased reward that should allow you to hire help. I mean, when I think of the classic executive assistant or the admin, their job description is to take the 80% off your plate. Because there are things like there are boxes that just have to get checked, right? I mean, I think about the real estate transaction in our industry. There's a tremendous number of tasks. I think we figured it out, like over 200 tasks that happen during a transaction. And for salespeople, all that detail just drives them batty. So you have to earn the right as a business person to either delegate, right? Or you can hire someone part-time or full-time to do a lot of that. So that to me is how if you really have to get them all done, it doesn't have to be just you. You can either pay to have a system or have an assistant that can do a lot of that for you. But I've had the day where instead of doing the top five, I did the other 20 and I'll come home lathered in sweat. My wife will go, how was your day? And I'll say something like I was really busy, like, you know, I skipped lunch. I didn't know when I was going to go to the bathroom. Then you reflect and she goes, well, was it a good day? And I'm like, I'm not even sure. I did a bunch of stuff, but I'm not sure that it mattered. And those aren't the days that I'm proud of. Everybody has them. But the days that you really get knocked out the priorities I could go on and on, like nobody's going to get a raise in their whatever law firm they're working for, for having a perfect attendance on every Zoom call. When they knock it out of the park doing their primary job, those are the people that get moved
1: forward. Many professionals believe that they're great multitaskers, but Jay says that there's no such thing, that what we call multitasking is a lie. I asked him to elaborate on that.
0: One of the philosophies that Gary and I follow whenever we write books is, before we kind of put the good ideas in, we try to say, what are the the big ideas that people get wrong? Let's get those out of the way. And so you're kind of walking through some of the lies of productivity. And the first one is this idea that everything matters equally and that's just wrong. And that's why we go to Pareto's Law until we get to our number one. If we can identify the number one priority, the second mistake people make is that they have a bunch of stuff. They just say, I'm gonna do two things at once. And we misunderstand how multitasking works. Not just in ourselves, but even in a computer. The reality is, when you look at the research, they'll often have multitasking in the title, but they'll refer to it in the science as switch tasking. Because what's happening is you're bouncing back and forth between two tasks so fast, you're not really aware that you're bouncing. Um, But we talked to the researchers that did a lot of this. And here's two steps that happen. You're focused on writing a brief, Michael. You're two paragraphs into like this three-paragraph, really important part of it and someone knocks on the door, interrupts your focus, and says, what do you want for lunch? So two things are gonna happen. The first one is that your attention will switch, and that is absolutely instantaneous. Squirrel, boom, like it's in our DNA to notice things in the background. We're very good at moving our attention. That's how we survived, right? You can see the tiger stalking you through the jungle because you saw its shadow in the background. That's a survival instinct. Fast, absolutely dialed in. The thing that we don't do well is that we have to go from the set of rules for writing this brief to the set of the rules, what sandwich do I want from the hoagie bar, right? And depending on the difference between the two rules, it takes between 25 to 100% longer. And so you have this moment in time you're not even aware of where you're just not doing anything. And it adds up to a lot. So the way it manifests in me, the only time I'm really aware of it is maybe I'm watching a sports game or I'm reading a book my wife will walk into the room and start talking to me. And I'm very intensely focused on this thing I'm doing. And maybe it's a video game, right? When I was younger, but it's like, I'm really focused on this thing. And I know the words are aimed at no one's ears, but my own. My wife is talking to me and I'll shake my head and say, I'm sorry, what did you just say, honey? And that's that refocusing time that we lose. And so researchers will estimate That on the average day, if you're interrupted by phone calls and emails, and just imagine, I've got two screens, but I know a lot of people who have Twitter up on one, Facebook over here, and their other thing in the middle, they're bouncing all day, that at least 28% of the average day is lost to this multitasking inefficiency. And so I could go through, we literally, I think we cite seven different pieces of research. It lowers your IQ on average by like 11 points. It's not a small amount. It's a big jump, right? It dumbs down your work. There are all these costs to multitasking. And even in one study, everything that multitaskers think they do well, they actually do worse than they think. So this is why, if you're a surgeon, can you pick up your own scalpel? You can't. You hold out your hand and someone puts it in there. If you're a pilot, you're not allowed to do other things. If you're a driver, when lives are at stake, we don't allow it because we recognize it. And the challenge I have is when you're doing your most important work, you may not be a rocket scientist or you may not be a surgeon, but someone's life is at stake. And that's usually yours. This is your life profession and you're dumbing it down. So now that maybe everybody's reeling going, oh, crap. (laughs) The way I usually say is like the world is engineered to distract us and to invite us to multitask. We listen. You may be listening to this podcast while you're jogging or working out. I get it. Those are two relatively unimportant in the grand scheme that the fear of being slightly inefficient is not going to kill you in doing those things. And that's why we do it. We listen to the radio while we drive. When you do your list in the morning, you do your success list, you've extreme Pareto'd it. You know what your number one is. Don't multitask while you're doing that. And what I've found is that people who actually focus, they turn off their email, they put on their, you know, they either, if they have an assistant, they say, hold all calls, Right. They get focused for this period of time. They're aware that they are vastly more productive. And that can be a little bit addictive. But the reality is in today's world, Gary doesn't operate that way for eight hours a day. But there is a period of time, like when we're writing or we're teaching, where we're just going to be very focused on that and not be doing something else.
1: Yeah. And I mean, as you've said, I mean, can we do two things at once? Sure. But can we focus on two at the same time? Absolutely not. And it's interesting how you, you take a lot of these concepts throughout the book and kind of like peel back the curtain. And, and one of which is just, I, I think, probably one of the more, uh, one of the more interesting chapters, or at least it was so beneficial to me, was when you talk about discipline. And, and I think a lot of times when people look at a successful entrepreneur or leader and they think, wow, this person has you know, so much discipline. And if only I had as much discipline as they do, um, I'd be so much more successful. But you really say it's not about the discipline.
0: No, um, we like to say it's about selected disciplines in the end of the day. But most people don't understand what discipline actually means.
1: If you ask a kid what discipline is, what do you think they're going to tell you? Always, you know, always sitting up straight, doing everything exactly as I should throughout the day. Okay, that's usually an older
0: answer, but I'll give you credit. Maybe you were an advanced child. Most kids, when they hear discipline, they think of punishment, of being disciplined, right? In the bad way. When other people, they think of it as the ability of to focus and hammer through without being distracted. And that this disciplined person, they they persevere, they have grit, all these other qualities. And the reality is they're actually describing something that we talk about in a later chapter called willpower. Discipline is training yourself to do something until it's automatic. And so um, a really formative experience, like I kind of intellectually understood that and I could see it in Gary's life and in my own life at different times where I had taken the time to build a really powerful habit, whether it be diet or exercise or whatever. And then all of a sudden, it just kind of became automatic. And I was like, wow, okay, you go through this hard work period to build a habit, and then things get a lot easier for you. It's a lot easier to maintain. So I went to uh, give a speech in Nashville, and I was going to teach literally all day on the book. And I show up um, at 7 o'clock. The class is going to start like at 9, and there's already someone sitting in the front row. And I assumed he was part of the staff. And I went up and I I started chatting him up. And I said, hey, so what's your role here? I just assumed I was like, I was there. I still have my cup of coffee. I'm there to get mic'd up. And he just introduced him, said, and said, oh, I'm early. And I'm here actually to hear you speak. And I'm like, dude, like you're like over an hour early. And he goes, yeah, it's a habit. I can't help it. And he said that habit word. And I just kind of, I got my focus. And I said, tell me more about that. He said, "Um, it's been over a decade, but for nine years, I was a green beret and I was trained to show up early and observe before I act. And I just can't shake the habit. So here's something a decade in his past, this need to show up early. And he said it drove his wife crazy. They were always the first people at the movie, the first people at all these places. She hated waiting around, but it was just disciplined into him. And that's what we talk about a disciplined soldier. They've trained on something until their reaction is automatic and so we look up at these first couple of productivity issues, these lies, like when you know what your one thing is, like don't multitask, wouldn't it be really awesome if I knew the number one thing that would make me a successful business person in the field of law, what would my number one thing be? What if I just made that thing a habit so that people like just started to understand, oh, it's 10 o'clock, Michael's doing X, right? You train yourself and then the world gets trained too. And so we dove into this idea of how long does it take to form a habit? And when you read the book, I I know you know the answer, Michael, and you clearly you've internalized it. What do most people think? How long do they think it takes to form a habit? Do you know? So I was gonna ask you about this because you usually hear it's 30 days or so, but you guys said it's much longer. That's right. I had heard a lot throughout my life. It was 21 days and occasionally you heard 30. And the 21 days when you trace that lineage all the way back, There's actually a book called Psycho-Cybernetics that came out in 1974, and it was a book about self-image by a plastic surgeon. And he made a statement in there that he had observed that it took on average 21 days for his patients to become accustomed to their new appearance. And everyone started quoting him on that, saying it took 21 days to form a habit. And it was funny. We start bouncing between all these books, and when we trace them all back to the lineage, it comes from this idea that's not actually related to habits, so there was a group of researchers, and the research happened in 2009 that actually were looking into this, and they were looking for the point of automasticity. I can't say it fast, three times fast, you get it. Basically, how long do you have to do something in a row before it becomes is about as automatic or as easy it's going to be? And so the power curve for them, when 95% of the effort went away, they called it a habit. And on average, people doing all kinds of stuff, I'm going to take the habit of doing eight glasses of water, I'm going to go to yoga every day, whatever it was, didn't matter the habit, the average is about 66 days. And so the lesson to us is that if you really want to commit to forming a habit, it could take two to three times as long as most people give it to actually get the habit. And that benefit then that serves you lasts so much longer. And there's a danger in 66 days. It's great. We invite people to take 66 day challenges and by and large that works, but depending on you and your circumstances and what you're trying to do, it can take longer or shorter. We actually talked to the researchers. They shared like their actual graphs on the low end. It took 18 days and on the high end, it took over 250. And I think back, I've got kids. I don't know. um, I think you've got a two-year-old welcome to the next stage, teaching them to brush their own teeth. It takes years to teach a kid to actually brush their teeth without being told. And they'll lie to you about it. I'm like, did you brush your teeth? Come here, let me smell your breath. And it's like, what? But now as an adult, right? You brush your teeth. You don't think about it. I can stumble in without any coffee or anything. And I can get that job done. And it's completely ingrained in me. Maybe once every three years, I'll make it to the car and go, oops. But for the most part, it's absolutely automatic. But it took time and effort. That's what we're talking about. You choose to be disciplined just long enough for the habit to form, and then you don't have to be that quote disciplined person. You're training yourself to do these things, and I we can geek out on habits. That's a you know I love um, James Clear's book Atomic Habits. There's so much great research that's come out in the last five years, but I do think that is if there's one ingredient to becoming superhuman, it's having the patience to focus on one habit at a time. What are the things that will truly make me and optimize my performance, my whatever it is? And you don't need a million of them. Like I've interviewed three billionaires in the last five years. When they add up the things that really add up to their success that they're aware of, it's usually just a handful of things. And they're really boring, but they just do them again and again and again. And they got really good at them. The fundamentals never went out of style. They just got really good at them. And it's just automatic. They don't miss it.
1: It's interesting. You know, I've always felt we're all committed to our existing set of habits. So, meaning that you know you can have good habits, you could also have bad habits, right? Five o'clock, you could be lined up at the at the liquor store, or five o'clock, you could be on your way to the gym. And I think both both are habits. So, you know, it's always been fascinating to me the power of building momentum through habits. Uh, I know you mentioned it's very important to be intentional, building one habit at a time. I know people always set New Year's resolutions about how they're going to transform their life, personally, professionally, and you know, there's a lot of people in the gym on January first, and, and perhaps not as many. In, you know, January the thirtieth, but I'd love to get your thoughts in terms of like perhaps you're know, removing habits or replacing habits rather. So uh, there's a principle that I'll just touch
0: on, and uh, I think atomic habits. This idea of tiny, right, atomic level. We talk about the smallest domino, and a, a big part of our training and coaching is trying to get people not to skip ahead to do the small. Thing that they can truly commit to building momentum on and then letting momentum take the rest of the way So I just want to hit on that. It's not about doing a bunch of stuff It's about picking kind of a keystone thing that launches a behavior And that that does a lot now when I interviewed gretchen rubin She did a book a few years ago called better than before we nerded out for about a half an hour on all the research that we've been reading And i'll tell you that it actually takes more effort to unwind a bad habit than it does to form a good one it's a little surprising, but I for I, I lived in Paris in New York for a, a long time ago. And for a while, I was a smoker. And I can tell you that, that that's an addictive drug, but it's a bad habit. And there's just not a lot of pleasure in it. Like a lot of times when we're doing something positive, we want to talk to people about it. We feel like a lot of positive momentum and energy. And we don't always feel that way of, you know what, I'm going to learn to start living within my means. I'm not going to spend more than I earned this month. People don't get a lot of positive momentum around it because they don't feel good about it, might even feel shame. And so they don't get a lot of positive reinforcement. So it is very hard often, but very doable. And one of the hacks you can do is sometimes, can you take a positive behavior to replace the old? And that gets you doing something different, right? Instead of doing this, I'm going to do this. And sometimes people line it up. I'm addicted to watching TV. We'll start watching it on the treadmill. Like, just reward yourself. Go ahead and and stream Game of Thrones, but do it while you're walking or on your Peloton, whatever. And you can kind of come up with this weird mix of taking the bad temptations and aligning them with the good behaviors until the good behaviors kick in. We can go like super deep on this stuff and nerd out, but I'll just say, pick one, lean into it, form a habit. And once you kind of figure that DNA out, you're off to the races. People, you look up and go, wow, That person is so put together. If you really unwound it all, there's been a journey they've been on and they have successively kind of added rituals and behaviors and habits to their lives that adds up to much, much more. Without a doubt, it's like show me your habits, I'll I'll show you your your future. That quote is by was it Deming, I believe, right? People um, don't decide their futures. They decide their habits and their habits decide their futures. It's probably the most Instagram quote in the book. And there's
1: truth to that. You know, you mentioned earlier when you're speaking about discipline that I think a lot of times what people uh, refer to as discipline is actually willpower. And you really talk about the fact that you kind of have a limited battery life on this stuff. It, it, you know, we, we've had uh, Ben Hardy on the podcast, wrote the book Willpower Doesn't Work, you know, really spoke about the power of like the environment around you and really being able to control that environment. But when you're speaking about willpower, a lot of it's implying that focusing on doing your most important work when your willpower is the strongest. That's Right. This is an evolving piece of
0: research. Um, I got to interview Angela Duckworth earlier last year and we like nerded out on this for a little while. And she clued me in on some brand new research, still validates what we talk about, uh, but it's also adding um, some motivation to this as well. But the idea of willpower, just to define it as different from discipline, willpower is, is the ability for you to say yes to what you need to do and no to everything else. A lot of times when we think about focusing, We imagine a spotlight that's going on the thing that we want to see. It's really more about blotting out everything else. That's actually takes a lot more energy. You think like I'm focused on this, this cup of coffee right in front of me. It's a very narrow target. Yeah, it is. But you're actually making everything else go away. You're ignoring all of this other. I mean, the tons of stuff that's coming in, you're ignoring it. So it actually takes a lot of energy to do. And they've measured this. When you ask people, like you'll take their blood sugar levels, you'll ask them to do willpower related tasks, focused, ignore these temptations, that sort of thing. You can literally see their levels drop in their bloodstream. And in terms of energy efficiency, your brain is like a hummer. It's just horrible mileage. The only thing that takes more energy is your liver, which is digesting stuff. So you've got this organ in between your ears that's like one 50th of your body mass that uses one-fifth of all of the energy that you consume. And so the lesson here, and there's um, my favorite study in the whole book, and it takes a while to unwind, but I'll just do a really short version. They studied, um, and this is a great legal example, right? They studied over 1,100 parole cases in Israel, and they were studying the rhythm of the judge's decisions. And in their system, the docket is random, so it's not lined up the way it might be in the U.S. It's a random docket, and they have three two-hour periods. They have a two-hour period where they'll make decisions, often rapid fire, as as often as one every six to 12 minutes. They'll go for two hours. They'll get like a 20-minute break. They'll get fed, like I called it a hobbit meal when they described it. It's like sausage, cheese, and some fruit. It's a snack. They'll go for two more hours. They'll get a late lunch, and then they finish the day. And they were measuring the likelihood that someone would get parole throughout each of those periods. And at the beginning of each of the periods, everybody has about a 65% chance. And over two hours, it'll rapidly drop almost all to zero in two of them and almost to zero in the other. Early in the morning, they tend to have the most decision-making power because what you realize is when you don't have willpower, it doesn't mean you can't decide. What you do is you go to your default decision. And for a parole judge it's go back to jail so there's like the lessons that we learned like first off justice isn't blind it's hungry and if you're going to be up for parole in israel be first in line for goodness sakes right don't be last because your chances are essentially zero and then the other one is that nutrition right actually can drive this and so most of the research will say you have the most willpower when you first wake up in the morning and you, you study really successful people, they tend to get a lot done before the rest of the world's awake. And there's a couple of things that are at play there. First off, and I also say this for, there's a, there's a lot of larks probably in this industry, there's probably some owls too. Morning is when you get up from a scientific energy standpoint. So if you work the night shift and you get up at two o'clock in the afternoon, that's when you're going to have the most mental energy to say yes to what you said that you're going to do and no to everything else. And over a lifetime, you know, repetitions, the ability to just do it, not even do it well, is going to add up and be exponential over time. And that is one of the secret recipes. Do it in the morning. Do it while there's fewer distractions. If everybody else is asleep, nobody's texting you, calling you, your Slack channel is blank. And you know what? In the morning, we get up at 5 a.m. to work out, my wife and I. I'm not tempted to go stream some show on Netflix, right? I might wanna look at the news, but I'm, I'm gonna go do what I got up to do. There's very little else on my mind. So there's fewer distractions to say no to. You have all the energy to say yes. And frankly, you can have an amazing day before 8 a.m. and then show up at work having worked out, maybe journaled, looked at your goals, had a good breakfast. For me, I spend time with my wife. We work out together. So we got that amazing relationship time. And the last thing I like to do is look at my goals. So all of that hopefully happens before I ever look at email. Email is other people's priorities. But if I've looked at my goals, what did I say I was going to get done today? I look at my calendar, which reflects my goals. Now I'm set. Now I can go into the email and I know what I should say yes to and what I should say no to. And all of that is about launching your day with willpower so that you can do the things that you said that you're going to do. That's a whole lot. I just threw a whole bunch at you, but you're kind of an advanced audience, Michael. Well, and
1: I will say back when I was in college, when my friends were were out drinking, I'd be listening to audiobooks. uh, I remember like by Brian Tracy, and I remember uh, listening to the book, Eat That Frog. And it's interesting because one of the most important changes that I made many years ago was was what you just described. Not only is it, you know, is it getting up earlier? So, you wake up in the morning, I'm practicing like Miracle Morning. um, We've had Hal Elrod on the podcast. But it's also, once you do get into the office, it is eating that frog. So, like, doing that, you know, that one thing early in the morning. Sometimes it's what, can be perceived as the least desirable thing, but you've got the greatest willpower and really not getting into the emails until much later in the day. Because I see people jump in very early or they'll jump in right out of bed and they're responding to emails. They're very reactive and so on. But just the amount of, of momentum that it builds to knock out you know, the, the one thing first thing in the morning. I can't remember who taught me some of these hacks, but you
0: know, um, batching, right? You can just basically take small periods of time and for repetitive tasks, try to concentrate them there. So instead of being in and out of my email, on my best days, and I can't tell you that I always do this because sometimes I'm standing in line or I'm waiting for a coffee and I'll, I'll do it. I'll open my email. But in general, in the morning, I've looked at my agenda. I know what my goals are. I've set my, my goals for the day. I know what my number one is, which is usually scheduled very early in the day for me, just like you described. That's when we do our writing time. That's when I do my most important time for my wife's business. That's when they do their sales call time. They're reaching out to clients. They're trying to do their outreach because that's even though it's the weirdest time in the world to be calling people. In the morning, it's when you're going to do it consistently. So I look up and usually for about 30 minutes, right around 8 a.m. when I start my day, my professional day, I'll do outgoing. I'll do slack to my people saying, hey, I want you to do this or I need this. It's outgoing agenda. And usually around noon, I've just chosen in my life not to do a lot of business lunches. And I will eat at my desk and I will use sometimes 30 minutes to an hour to triage now, all of the stuff that's been incoming. And then I'll do that again before I go home, because what I don't want to be is doing email instead of focusing on my wife and kids. If they still want to talk to me at the dinner table, right? My kids actually still want to hang out with me. God bless them, right? They're teenagers and I want to be there for them. So I don't regret that later. So I take those three periods in general and just try to go outgoing and then triage, triage as hard as I can. Then I lean on my EA as much as possible. And I, I say, Write it from my email and you can sign it. you. But here's what I want you to say, because I know if I get in there, I'm going to get lost in all the junk. And we don't do that on our best days. We called it in our very first book. We coined it the day before vacation miracle. Back when we used to take trips and go to the beach, right? When it wasn't pandemic times, when you had a big trip that you were really looking forward to. The day before, like you get the dog to the kennel, you canceled the paper, you do all of this stuff and you do all that stuff because you're not looking at the junk mail, you're not cruising the net, you're not getting lost on Google News, you're focused on the things that matter and you're saying no to everything else. We can't live exactly that way every
1: day, but for a few hours in the morning, we can. Another popular misconception that Jay deconstructs with his work is the idea of a balanced life. In fact, Jay believes that we should replace the word balance with counterbalance.
0: This is something that we, we discovered along the way. This was one of those that we weren't really uh, completely sure all the details. We just had a suspicion that the best businesses were often out of balance. And so this idea of a balanced life was maybe not going to serve people. And we, we kind of learned some bigger lessons than that. But the idea here is if we just go right to the heart of it, balance is not a destination. Right. When I'm public speaking. Right. And I'm in a room with a bunch of people. I'll often ask people, if you're physically able, would you stand up on one foot? And I'll say, great. Are you balanced or are you balancing? And everybody's like, I'm balancing. And I'm like, thank you. It's a verb. It's not a noun. So there's not this place where you get everything in your life so organized. It's not a destination where I'm in balance. Um, you know, everything's great. You have to do it. And it's an active thing. And the reality is great businesses figure out what their one thing is. And they're, they're really relentless about pursuing it. I mean, think about how technology's evolved into the minimum viable product. They figure out that feature and they go all in on it to blow it up, right? And it, they're out of balance. There's a lot of stuff they're not doing because they know that if I do this thing well, everything else gets better. And you were sharing your stratus, I mean, fear it, growth, right? There's a lot of fires that are going on while you're growing at that kind of pace. But if you do the right things, you've earned the right to get past that, and other people will help fix that as you go along and you'll scale your way up. The challenge here is what works in business actually doesn't work in your personal life. This is one of the only places, almost everything else that I've learned around business, planning retreats, all of those things, absolutely work in your personal life. But this idea of absolute relentless focus to the abandonment of lesser priorities in business doesn't work for your health, for your spiritual life, sure as heck doesn't work for your key relationships. And we see people violate those all the time. So we talk about counterbalancing. If I have to go on the road for a few weeks, I'm going to take a few extra days off. I might even pull my kids out of school and say, hey, let's go do something together. I can't wait until I've retired and then hope they still want to hang out with me. You know, I did all of this for you. I'm sorry I missed all of your birthdays, but now we get to spend time together. That's not going to work. That's not the way it works. So, you have to counterbalance around those other things. And we all know people, I can visualize them, someone who is cheating with their health. They're clearly not healthy, but man, they are killing at work, right? There's a tab that they're running up that will come to. And it happens in all of these, it happens in your spiritual life, it can happen in your relationships. And so, just understand there's work and there's your personal life. And in your personal life, if you leave things unattended for too long, they may not be waiting for you when you come back. In business, you can focus on those one things. They need to delegate the rest or let them wait until the one thing is done and that works. So that is this whole balanced life thing. It's a it's a little bit more of a complex idea, but it is a, it's an important one to internalize because I think a lot of people
1: have a lot of regrets when they violate it. I'd like to take that one level deeper because, and I think you would agree that a lot of like the magic happens at the extremes. And it seems like when I speak to many entrepreneurs, it's the ones that have like endured those years of, of perhaps, you know, a lack of balance, you know, between, you know, business and personal where now they almost feel like they're in a privileged situation where now they're, they're prioritizing personal and business. They've got a greater support team around them and so on. But had they not done those, like had that focus in those early years, Let's say they did eight hours a day, uh, 40 hour weeks. The business would never be what it is today and they would have never achieved or made the impact that they set out to or at least not, you know, not certainly not in that time frame.
0: I do believe that there's a lot of energy that can be put in on the front end that um, especially in launching a business, right, that you will be very out of balance. And the people who marry entrepreneurs, God bless them. We it requires a lot of communication. We've for four years now facilitated goal setting retreats primarily around entrepreneurs and their spouses, because a lot of times they just don't know why the journey has to be quite so whiplashy Um, and it can be very tough, but I do believe in that upfront investment, but I also, the cult of hustle really bothers me. Everybody has a dollars per hour and i work with someone who's a self-made billionaire. He doesn't work that many more hours than I do on average. And it's not about how many hours it's about what he's putting into the hours And I will admit in the very beginning of a business, there's often a lot of hours too. And I can say right now in my job, there's a couple of times a year we're coming up on one. We have two big events every year and there is weekend time and there's long hours before those events. And we know that and we plan for it and we counterbalance around it. But if you constantly cheat on time, there is a massive price that you will pay. Just be careful. What you said is true, right? That in the beginning of a business, a lot of times we will run some long hours, but there's got to be an end date. There's got to be a time where you just get more effective with what you do or you have more people doing it or there is burnout. I mean, there's a lot of burnout and a lot of people just crash and burn.
1: I agree wholeheartedly. And this was a, a painful lesson that I learned many, many years ago. And I'd like to finally get to this focusing question because we speak about balance and counterbalance. And it seems like the book is really designed around almost the idea of leverage, if you will. It's like focus and leverage.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of being, I mean, we wrote this with business people in mind. That's always Gary's first audience. That's who we work with. That's who we consult with. Primarily it's going to be a leader or a business owner. And we just, I mean, we want people to be the authors of their lives, and so leverage is this idea, it's twofold. If I'm doing the right things, they tend to be the most leveraged activities. There are things that give me the most output for my input. At the same time, as a business person, at a certain point, if I've done that really well, I've maximized my personal efficiency, I should get some returns. And if I can cap my lifestyle, I can then take those excess returns, reinvest them in the business and form of people. The rate of return on great people is infinite. You get the right people in place, and they take so much off of your plate. We teach a thing called the 411. It's where you check in every week, and you ask the focusing question. You know what your one thing is, and we have a little priorities check in with your boss. And the mistake a lot of us make around people is you've got one person that's absolutely doing 100% of their job. You have another person who's doing 90% of their job, and another person who's doing 80%. And you look up, and a lot of people say, 80% is pretty good week to week. No, it's not actually, because the problem is who's carrying the extra 20% they're leaving behind. Either it's just not getting done and every single week, the business is getting behind, but more likely the person who was doing hundred percent or you, the boss is having to pick up the slack and they're slowly but surely giving you their job back. So I don't know, like when we, we do this right, people have the ability to leverage through other people and get maximum return without it always having to come back to them right? Giving all the energy. I just went down about three avenues there, right? So you can pick up any of those threads if you want to, or we can go back to the focusing question that we've teased now for like 40 minutes.
1: I was just going to say, we got people sitting at the edge of their seats wondering what what is this question? What's funny is we did put it in the middle
0: of the book, even though it's maybe the primary idea. It is one of those things that's so simple and maybe obvious that people are like, what, really? But when Gary was launching his career and, and pretty much the whole time I've known him, he usually spends one to two days a week, noon a week, a month coaching and consulting with the very top performers in our industry. And it's one of the ways we stay in touch with what's happening in the field. And it's one of the ways that we also just get to help people, help them grow. And so I don't know if you've got a business coach. Or I don't know if you know what that relationship looks like. But basically, a lot of times it's a weekly commitment. You get together. You identify what the real priorities are, and, and you're, the coaching client will say, I'm committing to doing this, this, and this. And what Gary noticed is that people would do things that were not quite as important as the number one, and they'd come back and say, no, I didn't do that, but I did these things instead. And it was really out of frustration, kind of anger, that he was like, all right, Michael, if you only get one thing done this week to advance our priorities, just one thing, what are you absolutely going to do? And what he found is that when people only had one thing on their list, there was no place to hide. They almost invariably did it. And to his great surprise, they did all the other junk too. And so he learned over time that this idea of focusing people on their one most important was the only conversation that mattered. And so the evolution of the question started there and it took years, but it's this fully formed thing is what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else is easier or necessary. It's a big question that'll lead you to a big answer. And there's a series of things that make it up. You're not asking for what can I do, which could be a lot of stuff. What's the one thing I can do? And it's not something that you could, should, or would do in the future. It's what you can do today, because that's how we get our feedback loop. And the second half, the such that by doing it, all you're asking for is you're trying to find the biggest point of leverage you currently have. And I told you when we were writing the book, you know, for four and a half years, I'm living with this. I'm living it and I'm enjoying it, but I'm cheating. I get to work with Gary, right? I'm like, okay, maybe I'm living in a bubble. And I was really worried. But when people stop to ask that question, we find by and large, almost invariably that they get clarity that either they know the answer or they get to it and they might not be completely confident, but they're ready to go anyway. And we felt so strongly, like if you look at the back of the book, we just put a big question mark. We could have had testimonials. We could have had all kinds of junk there that you normally see on a book. But we really were clear. If they people only did one thing after reading this book, we wanted them to ask that question. If we believed if we could help them get clarity around their number one, that was the biggest service that we could do. Because here's the truth. When you know what you need to say yes to, it makes
1: it easier to say no to all the other junk. And I love that you take it a step further because this isn't just about the business. It's, it's really about our lives and, and talking about living with purpose. So this one, you know, it's, it's such an important aspect where, you know, you really can gain clarity on what you're doing, not to mention how could you ever be committed to anything that you even are ambitious about if you're not clear about the purpose. Um, so people talk about time management, which is really priority management. But if you could speak to like how purpose plays a role in, in really determining the, the one thing. Yeah, maybe
0: we can wrap it up around this, because this is kind of a foundational idea. Like there's two levels of your one thing. There's kind of like, what do I need to do this week or this month or this year? Right. And that's really about your your big priority around what you're doing on a much grander level. There's kind of like, what's my one thing? And that's a big question for a lot of people. But what we saw in, in that four and a half years and we studied musicians, artists, athletes, business people, businesses, like all of these different disciplines, the ones that really had a sense of mission, they understood their purpose, it gave them an amazing advantage over everyone else. And I think a lot of people know this. like, oh, you know, the purpose driven, whatever, you know, it's like, okay, people talk about that, but it's real. When you understand like purpose, your mission, like this is what our business is about. We are here to do X. Everybody gets mobilized and a sense of purpose gives you a clear sense of priority, right? I know where we're going. We're going to Buffalo, New York from Austin, Texas. That means I am roughly going to be going north by northeast. I don't have a map, but I'm guessing that's pretty close. But I have a direction. Now I absolutely know that going south, southwest is the wrong direction. So that sense of direction gives us a sense of priority. And the reality we believe is when you're acting regularly in your priorities, you tend to be as productive as you possibly can be. And business after business and individual after individual, when you see someone following that pattern, they get that foundation. They understand ultimately why the business exists and why they were meant to run it. And that's a heavy question, but you can get there. Then their priorities became amazingly clear and they became incredibly productive. When you think about a person on a mission, you say, ah, that Angela, she's on a mission. How do you picture that person? Are they wandering around playing games on their phone? No, their head's down. They have their blinders on. They're moving. They're walking fast because they know where they need to go and why it's so important to get there. That sense of purpose is amazingly powerful
1: for people. And Jay, I'd love to know, so the book that was released, I believe, in in 2013, since that time, just over the last several years, has your perspective, you know, changed on any of this? Like, is there anything that you wish you would have mentioned in the book or even as a follow up? We
0: spent a lot of time in this we got in the weeds a little bit and our publisher um the bar press they're great they only do one book a year and they spent two years working with us on this at the end they they gave us a long a long runway for this book but i remember ray coming up to us saying guys this is great there is a amazing book here but when people buy a book called the one thing they do not expect a doorstop apply the principles let's cut away everything that doesn't belong and in the last three months before we sent the book to the publisher, the book went from 440 pages to 220. Um, we cut a little bit more than 40% of the book by the, with the math. And it was hard. Um, and in writing, you call it murdering your darlings, right? There was a lot of stuff. And it, it informs the work, right? There was a lot of depth there that we just cut away because it wasn't actually vital. So a couple of them, I don't actually regret them, but they do show up sometimes. One of them was this idea of the low-hanging fruit, And it's very tempting, particularly for entrepreneurs. The challenge is if you don't know where you're going, the low-hanging fruit, right? It may actually be a financial win, but it could take you farther away from where you're ultimately going. And it could actually take you so far in that direction, you'll never get there, right? It's the ultimate distraction if you're not careful. I love low-hanging fruit, but it has to be directionally lined up with where I am planning to go. Otherwise, it is the distraction because the big reward is for those people who stay focused. So that, that was definitely one of them. And this is an advanced one. And maybe the more advanced people, the people who've really been living a successful career, maintenance, right, is also a killer, is that the more stuff that you build up around you, the more people that report you, the more maintenance that's required just to keep the whole engine running. And this is not an argument for a purely minimalist lifestyle. But it does tell you that stuff can start just sucking away your focus. My wife and I are rental you know, investors. You know, we have about nine rentals around Austin. And until we earned the right to have someone else manage those, you know what? There are some weekends that, hey, we got the call. We have to go tend to something we didn't expect to. And that can add up. The more of those things you have, a 5% chance of something happening starts happening every few months. <laughs> right? So maintenance is just the compounding of those things. So if you don't put the right people in place, that that's their opportunity to solve, you can end up amassing a world that eats you alive. So we cut that. I mean, that's like a it is absolutely when you talk to the top, top people who've kind of gone too far and realized it and pulled back, they'll say, man, that's the truth. I don't know that everybody needed that um, on
1: the front end. Well, I'm glad you mentioned it on the podcast because I, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I think that any time a business grows, there's layers of complexity, right? As, as we hit plateaus, and then you have to go through a wave of simplification to get to that next level. And Jay, as we as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? One of my core values,
0: my path to figuring out my purpose was to identify the three things that I really am hinging most of my decisions on. For me, it's family, impact, and abundance. I don't want to choose to do things, big things, that take me away from my family. That's just a big one. I know that when I violated that, I'm not a happy person and I have regrets. And so I've paid attention. I've learned my lesson. And going forward, I know if it's not a 9 out of 10 on that value, I probably shouldn't say yes. My number two is impact. I want to have an impact. And so making a difference, right? Difference makers, all of those things. There's a lot of different language. But ultimately, I think our legacy is going to be around, I'm, I'm a teacher, I'm a writer, about how we helped others. And I love, you know, I, I, I am a, a capitalist. I'm think of myself, I, I like to think I'm a capitalist with a heart. I love entrepreneurialism, and I believe in, in abundance, right? And that's got some of that's got to do with having more things. So I can, but I also like to give it away. I want to have an impact. My favorite moments as an author, I remember, one guy wrote me, And he said, um, after hearing you speak, I started walking my daughter to school. And that one simple act has made all the difference for me. And man, I mean, we've got 11 book awards. We sold two and a half million copies, 40 languages. That's the first thing I think of, is that we made an impact. We changed someone's life for the better. When you say that, that's where I go.
1: I hope you enjoyed revisiting this episode of the Game Changing Attorney podcast with our guest, Jay Papison and have gained new insights from our timeless conversation. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Jay Pappison, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.